Hey, Unnaturalists, I'm Emily. I'm Andy. And welcome back to another episode of Unnatural. Episode 101. 101 Dalmatians? Dalmatians? Jinx. Oh. Oh. 101. Bottles of beer on the wall. 101 there we bottles go. of beer. Take <laughs> one down, pass it around. 100 bottles of beer on the wall. So, Emily, this is a case that I had circled since day one of the podcast. And I kind of always knew that I wanted to do a deep dive on it. And right now, it just kind of feels like the right time. It's been 10 years since the town of Cleveland, Ohio, was thrust into the spotlight for all of the wrong reasons as one of the most unimaginable and bizarre abductions in recent memory was uncovered for the entire world to see. First, let's go back even further to April of 2003, as Amanda Berry was just finishing up her shift at the local Burger King. And she couldn't help but daydream about what was going to be her birthday present, as she was set to receive her grandfather's 1986 Monte Carlo SS, which is a pretty damn cool car for a 17-year-old to have. Yeah. Amanda was your typical American teenager. She described herself at the time as kind of a homebody who did pretty well in school and was obsessed with fashion. She often thought that it would be something that she would want to pursue as a career when she got older. So after work, Amanda began walking home when a red car pulled up alongside her. It was a man whose face she already knew, Ariel Castro. Castro was the father of one of her friends from school. And while she wasn't close with him, he was a guy that she had seen around her Cleveland neighborhood for years. So she didn't really view him as a threat or anything. Castro asked Amanda if she wanted to see his daughter. And since Amanda hadn't seen her friend for quite some time and she trusted Castro, she was like, yeah, he's a responsible, upstanding adult. I'll get in the car with him. And she got in the car without a second thought. This seemingly innocent action, spur of the moment decision, would end up being a moment that she would play in her head over and over and over again for nearly a decade of captivity. Ariel takes her down Seymour Avenue to what looks like a normal, if not homely-looking house. Amanda walked inside, and Ariel began showing her around the home. It was a home she wouldn't leave again for almost 10 years. Amanda had been abducted, but she wasn't Castro's first prisoner, as another unfortunate soul was already trapped inside. And she wouldn't be his last either. This is a story of perseverance and despair, of desperation and hope. And it's a story of a guy who was just eating his McDonald's on the porch, but was in the right place at the right time and became one of the most unlikely national heroes in recent memory. This is the story of the Cleveland kidnappings. Help me, Amanda Berry. I've been to 
Our first glimpse at those tense moments when Cleveland police pried open the front door of Ariel Castro's home, freeing Gina de Jesus and Michelle Knight. I knew something was wrong when a little pretty white girl ran into a black man's arms. Something is wrong here. In the early 2000s, the city of Cleveland, Ohio, was a fairly large working class city, but it had definitely seen its better days. Because of the declining economy, lack of high-paying jobs, and dwindling population, Cleveland had been given the not-so-friendly nickname of the Mistake on the Lake, as it straddled the waters of one of America's Great Lakes, Lake Erie. Not the greatest nickname, I would say. No, I've heard better. (laughs) Right. Around eight months before Amanda Berry was abducted, 21-year-old Michelle Knight was trying to find the case management building in downtown Cleveland. She was trying to get her son, Joey, back in her custody. Michelle had an absolutely horrible home life growing up, and that's putting it mildly. She was neglected, sexually molested by a relative, and didn't even have proper clothing or food as a child. She would later recall back to her childhood days and say that she would have to cook food like hot dogs and stuff on the radiator in her house just to warm it up enough to eat it. In high school, she was teased and bullied mercilessly. She was an outcast who usually sat in the back of the classroom and just hoped that nobody would notice her. Well, eventually one boy did notice her. It was an older boy And he kind of charmed her, and the two began having sex. Well, as one thing tends to lead to another, Michelle soon became pregnant. This is why we need better sex education in schools. Thank you. I know. One day, while leaving her baby, Joey, with her mom and her mom's boyfriend, apparently the boyfriend was drunk, and he grabbed Joey by the leg and fractured his knee. As a result... Joey was almost immediately taken away from Michelle and put into foster care. This is why Michelle was looking for the case management building. She had a very important appointment there. It was an appointment that could possibly determine whether or not Joey would come back to live with her. And obviously that was very important for her to get her son back, as it would be for any mom. Right. So Michelle is having a really hard time finding the place. Remember, this was before GPS and she's in a pretty big city. So she went across the street into a family dollar store and began asking the cashier for directions. It was at that moment that Ariel Castro intervened. He just happened to be in the store and told Michelle that he knew exactly where this building was and he could take her there in his car. It was August 23rd, 2002, and it would be the last time Michelle would breathe the fresh air outside, walk the city streets, and hold any sense of optimism for her future for nearly 11 years. That's so insane. Right. And in a very similar circumstance as to what would happen to Amanda Berry just eight months later, Michelle actually knew who Ariel Castro was. 
she didn't know him personally, but she knew one of his daughters and was friends with her. So just like Amanda, she trusted him. Somehow, while they were driving, Castro convinced Michelle that he needed to stop at his house quick. And to lure her inside, he told her that he had new puppies. And Michelle was a big animal lover. So she was like, yeah, I want to see the puppies. And he offered her to come in and see them. Once she was inside, that's when he threw her in one of the rooms and said, quote, you're not going to leave here for a long time, end quote. That just goosebumps. Like, well, no. Michelle fell to the floor and begged him to let her go. And Castro responded by grabbing a picture of her son, which was her only picture of him, and ripping it up in front of her. Oh, my God. Yeah. Just very cruel. And I probably should give a trigger warning here. There are going to be, uh, you know, some instances of sexual assault here. I'm not going to reveal every horrific detail of what happened during these sexual assaults because I don't think it's needed in the story. But if you want any of that info when you're done, you can certainly find it on the Internet. But he did tie her up by the hands and legs with an extension cord and even wrapped the cord around her neck. Oh, my God. And then he proceeded to fondle himself in front of her. After this horrifying event took place, he then took her into the basement, blasted his radio on at a very high volume so nobody could hear her screams, and tied her up to a pole on the basement floor Finally, he put a motorcycle helmet over her head to muffle her screams even more, turned out the lights, and walked back upstairs. And she was down there for a very long time, tied up with this motorcycle helmet over her. And I don't know if you've ever worn a motorcycle helmet, but they can get pretty hot and sticky pretty quick when you have one of those on. So just another horrible thing for her to endure. He did bring her food once or twice a day, but he also consistently sexually assaulted her multiple times a day. And this man, Ariel Castro, was a school bus driver. He was a bass player in a popular local salsa band, and they had apparently all kinds of gigs all over town. But he did always say that if they were going to do any traveling, that he wasn't going to be a part of it because he had to stay in the Cleveland area. And afterwards, we know why. Mm -hmm. And by all accounts, he was a beloved member of the neighborhood. He was friendly to his neighbors. He had fireworks and parties on the 4th of July and even hosted cookouts with others who lived around the area. But he also had a dark side. Ariel was single, but he had been married before. From what I gathered, it ended sometime in the 90s. But it was a marriage that was absolutely fraught with a myriad of issues, including a number of domestic violence calls to the police. Shocker, right? Mm -hmm. There were instances where 
he would throw his wife down the stairs and get extremely violent and even threaten to kill her. In fact, Amanda Berry was later quoted as saying that he was very scary, his voice was mean and deep, and if you ever looked into his eyes, they were black like he had no soul. So this is what the two girls are dealing with. And speaking of Amanda, if you remember, he had lured her to his house by saying that his daughter was there. But of course, she wasn't. But Michelle Knight was. Castro took Amanda upstairs. He threw her into the room that was kind of adjacent to Michelle's room, locked her in chains that he had strategically attached to Michelle's chains in the other room. So they were all kind of connected and then sexually assaulted her. And just like Michelle, he then took Amanda down to the basement, tied her up, put the motorcycle helmet over her head, and turned the radio up so nobody could hear her screaming in agony. But one difference between what happened to these girls was the family's response. As I mentioned before, Emily... Michelle's family was really no family at all. And nobody really bothered to even look for her when she went missing. Yeah. Plus, she was over the age of 18. So the authorities just chalked it up as somebody who was running away from their problems. Amanda's family, on the other hand, immediately knew something was wrong. And when their daughter didn't come home from work, they sprang into action right away. Now, this was kind of the early-ish days of cell phones, early 2000s, but they were starting to become more mainstream around this time, and Amanda had one. And of course, her parents called her cell phone, but no answer. Not long after, her parents called the police, and search parties were initiated pretty quickly. They passed around flyers all over the city, and even a $25,000 reward was offered. Friends, families, and neighbors all canvassed the area. And guess who else showed up to some of these search parties and vigils? Ariel Castro. Oh, shocking. Acting like he was this upstanding, concerned citizen. Not only did he do that, Emily, but he also actually called Amanda's mother from Amanda's own cell phone. It just shows how brazen this guy was. He must have thought he was untouchable at this time. He had already kidnapped two girls and gotten away with it so far. And the phone call happened about a week after he had abducted Amanda. On the call, he told her mother, quote, I have Mandy, end quote which apparently only Amanda's close friends and family called her Mandy. So the mom knew this guy was probably telling the truth and it wasn't some sort of prank caller. He also said that she wants to be with me and we're married now. And you'll see her in a few days. Her mom pleaded for him to let her talk to her daughter Mm -hmm. and just you know, let her at least hear her voice, let her know that she was okay. But she only got silence in return. And then he hung up. 
And that would be the closest that her mom would ever get to speaking with her daughter again. By the way, in case you're wondering, police did try to track that cell phone, Mm -hmm. but the technology at the time was still kind of in its infancy and they didn't get very far with it. I was, I was wondering. I think if that were to happen today, it would have been a lot easier. Mm -hmm. Not long after this, Amanda's mother went on a national daytime talk show called the Montel Williams show. Remember that show? I do. I do. It would always be on in the early afternoon, just something to have on. Yeah. Uh, I, I never liked the guy and I certainly never liked this guest. I remember her from time to time. He would have this fraud. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, psychic on with him named Sylvia Brown. Are you being a little cacologist over mm-hmm. there with your fraud? Fraudian slip, if you will. A fraudian slip. I like that. That's good. <laughs> Thank you. I'm here all week. I'll tell you why I think she's a fraud. Sylvia would always be on there and she would tell people what was going to happen in their lives, who they were going to marry if their dead mother had anything to say to them, that kind of shit. Yeah. Well, Sylvia was on with Amanda's mother. And this is about a year and a half, two years after Amanda had gone missing. Mm -hmm. And she told her straight to her face that Amanda was dead and that she could see her body lying in a pool of water, which obviously wasn't true. Yeah, and it's sick. Um, she made the whole thing up. I know. I could never do that. I could never do that. I could never. That's why I have a problem with psychics and mediums and stuff like this, because the vast majority of them, I don't really believe. And this so-called psychic did this kind of thing all the time. In fact, there was another high-profile case where this 11-year-old boy, you might remember this name, Sean Hornbeck, He went missing while he was riding his bike in 2002, Mm -hmm. and his family went on the Montel Williams show with Sylvia Brown, and she told them that he was dead and that his body was in between two jagged boulders. Well, the lie detector determined that that was a bullshit lie, because... He was rescued in 2007 after being held against his will along with another boy by a local pizza shop owner. Mm -hmm. And what makes this even more sad is Amanda's mother genuinely believed what Sylvia had told her on the show back in 2004. And she was... That is heartbreaking. Utterly devastated. And she died from heart failure a year later. Oh, she died before they even found her? Yeah, years before they found her. Oh my God. Just, yeah, like you said, heartbreaking. Yeah. So the community is on edge. It's been a year since Amanda was abducted, but it's still fresh in people's minds. And then it happened again. This time to 14-year-old Gina Jesus.
Are you intrigued by the dark side of things like murder, kidnapping, and sex cults? What about when the criminal is your favorite musician or actor or director or writer? Hollywood might look like all glitz and glamour until you take a closer look. But I'll tell you one thing, that kind of point of view can make you more vulnerable. From Roman Polanski to Mackenzie Phillips to Judith Barcy to Kurt Cobain, some are predators and some are prey. I'm Dee Dee West, and I just might ruin your childhood. Follow my podcast, Broken Limelight, where I cover celebrity true crime stories. For more information, visit BrokenLimelight.com. Again, that's Broken Limelight. Follow it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Gina was a shy but happy 14-year-old. She loved hanging out with her friends and going skating and dancing. Like any 14-year-old, apparently she was also absolutely obsessed with that movie Selena about the pop star who tragically died, played by Jennifer Lopez. Do you remember that one? Yeah. Speaking of Selena, um, if you want to hear a really good podcast about her murder, go check out Broken Limelight, a celebrity true crime podcast. Shameless plug for our friends. Yes, one of our favorite podcasts out there. In April of 2004, around one year after Amanda went missing, Gina was actually walking home from school with Arlene Castro, Ariel's daughter, whom she was friends with. Now, Arlene had actually called her mom from a payphone. Gina lent her the 50 cents or whatever it was. And she asked her mom if she could stay the night at Gina's. As one does. But her mom said no, so the two separated. And the last thing that Gina said to her was, you owe me 50 cents. Because just a few short minutes later, almost like clockwork, Ariel Castro pulled up. He asked Gina if she had seen his daughter... And of course, Gina said, yeah, I just talked to her. We were just walking home together. So he said, why don't you get in the car and help me find her? And then when she was in the car, I think he might have lied to her and said that his daughter maybe was over at his house. So they drove to his house and went inside. What if he, this guy is so sick. He's a master manipulator, especially for, you know, young developing minds. You yeah. Know. And just like like the balls to just like go after these kids that you know that know your kid? Yeah. Yeah, that are friends with your daughters. Unreal. Gina said that once they got inside, he began touching her inappropriately and she told him not to do that, that he was an adult and it was wrong. Then he stops and said, "Okay, You can go home now, but you can't leave the way you came in. And he led her down the stairs, essentially the same thing that he did with Michelle and Amanda. He then tied her up, assaulted her, turned the music up, and put the motorcycle helmet over her. Just as with Amanda, Gina's parents and local law enforcement 
organized search parties and held vigils for Gina. It probably won't surprise you that Ariel even went to a vigil for Gina and spoke with her mother about how he would be on the lookout for anything suspicious. Oh, yeah. Super suspicious. I'll help you find your daughter. You're the suspicious one. She's in my basement right now. Yeah. (sighs) And in a really cruel act, he actually brought one of the flyers back and gave it to Gina. This was the kind of hell that these girls had to endure for years upon years. I mean, as if it's not bad enough that he's like raping them, he's psychologically torturing them like that. Mm -hmm. And he would continue to do so and get even worse. It's really hard to wrap your head around. And these girls, they only had a few brief moments in all the time that they were there where escape was even a possibility. There were a few times, but I'm just going to tell you about one of the more notable ones. It was when one of Ariel's daughters was coming over to the house unexpectedly. So what he did was he quickly tied up all three of the girls, chained them all together. He put wigs and sunglasses on them and he marched them outside. And just to think about this was the first time they had been outside in years. And then he put them in the back of his van and his daughter gets there and they start to visit inside the home. And this was in August. So it's one of the hottest days of the year. And he's got them in chained inside this van with no air conditioning for hours on end. I can't, I can't even imagine. I cannot, I cannot imagine what that was like. Just absolute fucking hell for these girls. And so the van was towards the end of the driveway and he actually left the key inside of it. And there was a sliver of a moment where the girls actually discussed with each other whether or not they should hightail it the hell out of there and break free from this monster and this life of hell. But in the end, they couldn't do it. I don't know if they all mutually agreed not to, or maybe their instincts were telling them not to do it. It's one of those things where if you're put in a horrible situation for long enough, you don't even know how to get out of it. Yeah, well, and I'm sure, like, they were terrified of, like, what if it didn't work? What is he going to do to us? Yeah, what if it doesn't start right away or something like that? And then he hears Yeah, all of those things. You know, they were conditioned to not try to get away. Right. Over the years that they were there, he would, as we mentioned, just play all kinds of mind games with them. When the girls were, quote, unquote, good, he would give them gifts Occasionally, food, clothing, coloring books. Wow, how kind, food and clothing. (laughs) But one of these gifts would actually end up being pretty beneficial for Amanda. He gave her a notebook. And in it, she would write about everything. All of the hardships that she was enduring, what her life was like there. And she would even write in code For example, 
at the top of some of her entries, she would write 3x or 4x or even 5x. And this was marking the number of times that he had sexually assaulted her that day. That's so gross. That's so horrific. But she did it so one day people would know exactly what happened to her while she was there. It was smart. Yeah. He would also pit the girls against each other. He would give one of them more food than the others. He would let one of them watch the good TV or more TV, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And when you are in a prison like that for years on end, that's a big deal to you. Right. And in turn, he would ask them to snitch each other out for things, for whatever information he was looking for. But the mind games he would play on them kind of affected them in a deep psychological way. Well, yeah. And so much so that some friction began to develop between all of them to a certain extent, but really Michelle and the other two. And there isn't a whole lot that's been shared about this, but whatever it was, you can tell it's still there to this very day. Mm -hmm. As Amanda and Gina still seem to be pretty close and they appear in public together and they do interviews together, whereas Michelle always does all of that on her own. Right. She doesn't really ever speak to Amanda and Gina from what I understand. And I guess we shouldn't like it's it is it's so sad. Like they went through this horrific, horrific ordeal together. And like they are the only ones that understand, like truly understand and truly know. And whatever he did was so bad. That it just stayed with them. Yeah. And I guess we shouldn't be surprised by this. The guy was a master manipulator. Right. And it. Sounds like one of his goals was to sow deep divisions between the girls so they wouldn't trust each other. But in one instance, they did have to band together. And that was when Amanda went into labor. Mm. So around three years after her abduction, Amanda found out she was pregnant. Now, She kept it from Castro as long as she could for obvious reasons. I mean, plus in the past when Michelle had become pregnant, which apparently was at least five times by him, he aborted the babies each of the times in a number of different ways that I'm not even going to get into here. Oh God, that's sick. On Christmas day, 2006, Castro allegedly ordered Michelle to assist in the birth of Barry's child. So Amanda's giving birth on Christmas day. Michelle was in there with them. I'm not sure if Gina was in the room or not, but all of this went down in a small inflatable swimming pool. And Castro threatened to kill Michelle if the baby didn't live. Which is wild. For what? I know. You did that for what? I mean, I know in just like my reading about, because I've I've heard about this case. I think many of us have. But like, I, I remember her talking in interviews how like 
she arguably was treated the worst throughout. And for what? She even had to have facial reconstruction surgery. Yeah. When she got out because he would beat the hell out of her. And so I think you're right. I think he was harder on her than the rest of them. And at one point, the baby stopped breathing. But Knight, Michelle Knight, was able to resuscitate her. Eventually, when the baby got older, he would actually take Barry's daughter, whose name is Jocelyn, outside of the house. He would never take any of the women he had abducted outside of the house, but he would take the granddaughter or the daughter. I want to say granddaughter because it seems like it should be his granddaughter because of the age gap. But no. But it was his daughter. Apparently, Jocelyn, in the beginning, because she lived there for six years, remember, she would call him daddy. And she even met Ariel Castro's mother and called her grandmother. I'm not sure exactly what Ariel Castro said to his mother about how he got this baby. I think he made up some lies to her. It sounds like uh, he said that it came from someone else or something like that. It wasn't actually his, but obviously it was. In uh, 2013, he actually showed one of his daughters a picture of Jocelyn, and he told her that it was his girlfriend's daughter from a previous relationship. Mm -hmm. Like I said, Jocelyn lived in the house for six years. Amanda even taught her how to read and write. Oh, wow. And Amanda would take her to school every day. So she would be her mom in the beginning of the morning. And then she said, okay, now we're going upstairs to go to school. And she would take her up the stairs. They would get inside a room. And then she would turn into her teacher. So that's that's how Jocelyn That's so sad that that's the life that they had to live. But it's also amazing. It is. It's it's amazing. She was that, so young. Yeah. When mm-hmm. she was taken and yeah. she just like essentially like grew up in captivity. Because how old yeah. was she again when she was taken? She was a day before turning 17. Right. Yeah. Michelle Knight was 21 and Gina was 14. Right. Um, and speaking of Michelle, just one other quick thing that happened to her in captivity like I told you, she was a lover of animals, and Ariel did have a number of dogs that he had at the house, and one of them she grew really a- attached to, but Castro killed it by snapping its neck after it bit him while it was trying to protect Michelle. Yeah. Just, uh, the guy is, I mean, they call him the monster of Cleveland for a reason, you know? That's literally what he is. May 16th of 2013 is a day that Clevelanders will never forget. It was a miracle that would take place right before their very eyes. Hope of ever finding Amanda Berry and Gina DeJesus had all but faded away. And Michelle Knight was a name that most people didn't even know. She wasn't even on the law enforcement's radar. But before the day was over the entire nation would know all of their names. Amanda was finally able to make contact with somebody other than Ariel or the other girls in the house. She noticed that a door, the front door, was kind of open a little bit, which 
he had done that in the past to test her and the other girls. Mm-hmm. And then if they would try and go for the door, well, they would be in a world of trouble. So right. at first she was very reluctant, but she eventually opened the door and then saw that there was another door there that was just bolted as much as it could be. One of their rescuers would later say that it looked like it was a door for a torture chamber. So she gets to the door. She's banging on the door and screaming. And a few people heard her. One man ran to the door, but apparently he couldn't speak English very well. And he was very scared. Another man was sitting on his porch, eating his McDonald's, as he said. Mm -hmm. His name was Charles Ramsey, and he kicked a hole through the bottom of the storm door, and Amanda actually crawled through it with her daughter. And Charles said that Amanda told him that she and the child were being kept inside against their will. Why don't we just... Roll the clip. Roll the clip here. Charles... Hey, Charles, Charles, let me talk to you. I'm talking with Charles Ramsey. He's a neighbor. Uh, t- walk me through again what happened this afternoon. You, were, you, you heard screaming. Heard screaming. I meet my McDonald's. I uh, come outside. I see this girl going nuts trying to get out of her house. So I go on the porch, and she says, help me get out. I've been, I'm, I've been in here a long time. So, you know, I figured it's a, a domestic violence dispute. So I open the door, and we can't get in that way because... How the door is, it's so much that the body can't fit through, only your hand. So we kick the bottom, and she comes out with the little girl, and she says, call 911. My name was Amanda Berry. Now, did you know who that was when, you, when she said that? When she told me, it didn't register until I got to call the 911. And I'm like, I'm calling the 911 for Amanda Berry? I thought this girl was dead. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and she got on the phone, and she said, yes, this is me. And Detective Gregory Cook says, Charles, do you know who you rescued? I said, I said, now, and when did you see when did you see Gina? About five minutes after the police got here. See, the girl Amanda told the police, I ain't just the only ones. It's some more girls up in that house. So they went up there, you know, 30, 40 deep, and when they came out was just astonishing. Cause I thought they were gonna come up with nothing. I figured, I mean, whoever she was, and like I say, my neighbor, uh, you, you got you got the, some big testicles to pull this off, bro. Cause we see this dude every day. I mean, every day. How long have you lived here? I've been here a year. Okay. You should come up from? Right. I barbecue with, with this dude. We eat ribs and, and whatnot and listen to salsa music. You should come up from? And you had no indication that there was not anything going on? bro, not a clue that that girl w- was in that house or anybody else was in there against their will because how he is, is I just, he just comes out to his backyard, plays with the dogs, tinker with his cars and motorcycles, goes back in the house. So he's somebody that you look and you look away because he's not doing nothing but the, the average stuff. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. There's nothing exciting about him. Well, until the day. <laughs> what, was, what was the reaction on the girls' faces? I can't imagine to see the sunlight, to be Bro, around people. I knew something was wrong when a little pretty white girl ran into a black man's arms. Something is wrong here. Dead giveaway. 
Dead giveaway. Charles, thank you very Dead much. Dead giveaway. Thank you very much for your time. And either she homeless or she got problems. That's the only reason why she run to a black man. Charles, thank, thank you for being there, man. Charles Ramsey, neighbor, heard the screaming, took action, went and did what he needed to do. The rest is unfolding before us here on CMR. I'm going to send it back to you. Charles Ramsey is a freaking icon. Oh, my God. That. And so that was live on local TV, right? Right. But the networks like ABC and CNN were absolutely desperate for information on this because it was breaking. So they actually took that local news feed live. So it was on all of the major cable news uh, channels, which is amazing. And within an hour, it had millions of views and was played all across the country, even the world. And it went absolutely viral and turned Charles Ramsey into an absolute hero yeah, and a star. He, he deserves every second, every bit of praise. Yeah. And by the way, for the record, Charles Ramsey later said that he wasn't a hero. He was just a guy who chose to do the right thing because not everybody does in a situation like that. Well, exactly. Like that was what I was about to say. Like some people might hear that and just be like, I'm a man, my business. Yep. You yeah. Know? How often are you in a public place or something and maybe you hear people arguing or what something goes down and exactly you just kind of mind your own business, you know? Oh, I don't mind my business. <laughs> good. I don't. Well, good. I listen. I listen. <laughs> like when the couples are arguing, I'm like, talk a little. Because I'm listening back and forth, and I'm like, oh, she got a point. And then I'm ready. Like, if homie oversteps <laughs> a little bit, like, I have so much pent-up rage. <laughs> I am waiting for for a man to give me You're an like, excuse. I got you, girl. I got you. I do. Girl supporting girls. Hashtag TM. <laughs> right. So, you know, Charles didn't make a lot of money. In fact, at the time, he was working as a cook at a local restaurant. Well, he was actually offered a pretty large sum of money for a reward and apparently turned it down, saying that the girl should get it. Mm -hmm. To me, that's a hero in every sense of the word. 100%. Now, he, he might not be the typical hero you think of, but that was, that's not what makes this... Not all heroes wear capes. Some of exactly. them eat McDonald's and sit on their porches. <laughs> Right. Now, I also want you to play clip two that I sent you. So this is Amanda's 911 call to the dispatcher. 911. Call me. I'm Amanda Barry. You need police, fire, or ambulance? I'm the police. Okay, and what's going on there? I've been kidnapped, and I've been missing for 10 years, and I'm, I'm here. I'm free now. Okay, stay there with those neighbors. Okay, uh, 
What did you think of the dispatcher? I don't know. Because I know that they are trained to, like, not be emotional and just ask the questions. But it was it was weird to me that she, like, wasn't really asking many questions. She was just like, talk to the police when they get there. Talk to the police when they get there. Yeah, it was a man. Uh, who was a dispatcher? A lot of people oh, did whoops. think it was a woman, but Sorry it was a man. Sorry for misgendering. No, 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 you, you're not. You're not the only one. Uh, a lot of people thought that, and there was a big public outcry when that nine one one call was made public and was released. Uh, people were very, very upset with that dispatcher saying he did not, you know, show any empathy towards her what, whatsoever. It got to be such a media firestorm that the Cleveland police actually did discipline him. And I think they suspended him for a few days. He wasn't let mm-hmm. go, uh, but, it, but he was suspended Maybe after just for that. Maybe like some um, retraining. Well, and apparently the dispatch office had been receiving phone calls for years of prank callers who were saying that they were Amanda Berry or saying that they knew where Amanda Berry yeah. was. Um, and you can kind of hear that in his voice a little bit, I yeah. think, that he's not 100% sure if this is legitimate or not. But as I said, it got to be so much that he was reprimanded for it. Ariel Castro was actually found just a few minutes later in a McDonald's parking lot. And he was immediately charged with four counts of kidnapping and three counts of rape which carry prison sentences of 10 years to life in the state of Ohio. Two of uh, Ariel's brothers, Pedro and O'Neill, were also taken into custody initially, but they were later released just the next day after police determined that they didn't have anything to do with it and the charges against them were Mm. dropped. Before he was sentenced, he addressed the people in the courtroom for about 20 minutes, which is rare. Like whenever we talk about these murders and the killer is finally found and they go to court, how often do you hear that they just didn't say anything, that they're very stoic and just stand there? You know what I mean? Most of the time, because that is, I believe what they are probably advised. Exactly. To do. Well, 
he did not do that. Of course not, because he's a freaking narcissist and a sociopath. Well, he said he was a good person. He's wrong. And he said he was not a monster. He said <laughs> that this had gotten so bad because he was a sex addict oh. and he was addicted to pornography. And he said that he had never tortured or beat any of these women. And he said most of the sex that he had with them was consensual. Yeah. <laughs> with teenagers. As a 40-something-year-old man. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Sure. Makes sense. I mean, of course. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was completely consensual, even though they were locked in my house for 10 years. Yeah. You know, and I had them tied up. Yeah. So, he would start blaming people. He blamed the FBI for not being able to catch him for so long. He blamed the victims themselves for getting into the car with a stranger. But he wasn't um, a stranger. Right. Well, that too. Yeah. Like, not a complete stranger. Yeah. And he also... Imagine victim blaming your own victims. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had to do it to teach him a lesson, not to get in cars with strangers, because look at what could happen. <laughs> and one of the other messed up things he said was he insisted to the people in the courtroom that when he had sex with them, he discovered they were not virgins as if that has anything to do morally. Okay. And with, right. They were also probably having sex with people who were age appropriate. Consensually, well, they, you know, that then he started apologizing and he said, quote, I hope they can find it in their hearts to forgive me because we had a lot of harmony going on in that home delusional mm -hmm. just delusional and at that sentencing um michelle knight and family members of amanda berry and gina de jesus showed up and michelle straight to castro's face said quote you took 11 years of my life away i spent 11 years in hell now your hell is just beginning. Full stop. Period. Mic drop. Unfortunately, his, his hell didn't last for very long, at least here on Earth, because yeah. he hung himself in his cell about a month later. Like a fucking coward. Yeah. Apparently, the guards were kind of on like 30-minute intervals to check on him. He wasn't technically on suicide watch, but because the case was so famous, um, they kind of checked on him more than they would somebody else. But um, he did kill himself. Although at first, <sighs> it, th there was a weird thing that was going on for a while. People were like, no, he died of autoerotic asphyxiation. And, like, they had to shut all those rumors down. It's like, look, I know the guy was a sexual deviant and he was a horrible person, but, no, he killed himself. Yeah. Second of all, I don't, I mean, I can't put myself in the mind of somebody like that, but after all this went down, I don't think he was trying to do the autoerotic asphyxiation at that moment. Yeah, no, probably. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. It's now been over 10 years since Michelle, Amanda, and Gina were freed from their prison. 
do you remember that when it first broke? Do you remember watching the news? I remember for a couple of days, I was glued to the TV at that time. It was just insane. What year was it's it? 2013. Around May of 2013. Yeah. I don't know. I remember, I remember hearing, I remember hearing a lot about it. Well, I was already in radio. So like we were getting our news briefs every morning and stuff. And it was always at the top of the news. And it's crazy because it's been 10 years. That was about the amount of time that they were all imprisoned together. Right. 10 years. And a lot has changed for all three of them. As I kind of alluded to before, Amanda and Gina have remained close since they gained their freedom. They actually co-wrote a book along with Mary Jordan and Kevin Sullivan that came out in 2015, just two years after they were freed. I did read that. I read that a couple of years ago, too. Um, it was called Hope, a Memoir of Survival in Cleveland. It goes into a lot of detail about you know, how they were kidnapped, what they had to endure from Castro and kind of how they came to terms with it after their sudden rescue. Amanda lives in Ohio with her older sister, Beth. And these days she often speaks at middle schools and high schools to students to help kind of spread awareness and to let them know what it's like in the real world and how your life can be turned upside down and changed forever based on one small decision like getting into a man's car right last i read as of earlier this year she has her first real boyfriend since all of this went down which is awesome yeah good for her and she still has an extremely close relationship with her daughter that she gave birth to in that house back in 2006 her daughter jocelyn celebrated her 16th birthday not long ago Mm -hmm. And it was said that she danced with her mom at her Sweet 16 party. Oh, my God. That's cute. Amanda is now kind of a regular on TV in Northeast Ohio as she hosts a daily segment on one of the local channels called Missing with Amanda Berry, where she goes over other missing children and stuff like that. Oh, and remember... Amanda's grandfather's Monte Carlo that she was supposed to get when she turned 17. Of course, she got abducted. Well, recently, kids at a local high school spent over 500 hours restoring and refurbishing the Monte Carlo and gave it back to Amanda earlier this year. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Right. That's so cool. On an interview on the Missing Kids website, Amanda said, quote, I mean, it's still tough sometimes. I still have thoughts of certain things, but I have a great support system. But I'm happy. It's so weird. I never thought I was going to be able to trust and love somebody. It's nice to have a normal life sometimes. I know I'll never truly have a normal life, And I'm coming to grips with that. It's okay. As long as I make the best out of it that I can. 
It's been a good 10 years. Gina DeJesus grew up speaking Spanish, but after not being able to use it for 10 years almost during her imprisonment, she forgot how to speak it. Slowly, since her release, she has begun using it again, and now she speaks it fluently now. She also started a nonprofit called the Cleveland Center for Missing, Abducted, and Exploited Children and Adults. And true to kind of the resilient woman she is, she opened the place on Seymour Avenue, which is just down the street from the house where Ariel Castro kept her. I don't know if I could stay in that area, dude. Yeah. It's just kind of a big middle finger to him, I think. Yeah. And by the way, that house that they were imprisoned in for so long has since been bulldozed to the ground. Good. And finally, that brings us to Michelle Knight, who has quite possibly had the hardest road to navigate since she gained her freedom. As unlike Amanda and Gina, Michelle, as we mentioned, didn't have a great family foundation to begin with. Mm -hmm. Nobody was looking for her as she was held captive by Castro. And it brought some serious psychological baggage. She was already in her 30s by the time she got out. But Michelle has persevered. It doesn't sound like she's been able to reconnect with her biological son. Remember the son that she was the son she was looking for at the beginning of the case that I told you about. Yeah. Um, He was adopted into another family while she was missing. And I don't think that they ever allowed her to visit him while at least he was under their care. He is now, he is now of age. I think he's around 21, 22, but I haven't found out any information as to what their relationship is, if they even have one. And to be honest, it's really not any of mine or anybody else's business. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know I remember she changed her name too. Yeah. And I, I was, I was going to tell you about that. Um, Michelle Knight is no more. She has since changed her name to Lily Rose Lee, and she's now pursuing something that she's always been pretty passionate about, and that's animals. Remember, we were talking earlier about how she had such love for animals. Mm-hmm. She, st- she actually started a nonprofit called Unleashed Animal Rescue, and I checked out their website. It's really cool, and she finds abandoned or discarded animals and finds them their forever homes. That's amazing. While she was at her darkest moments inside Castro's house of hell, she wrote down in her notebook that if she ever got out, she was going to do something with animals. And she she did. Helps these neglected animals now. And in turn, she said that they have rescued her as much as she's rescued them. And finally, Charles Ramsey, the man who was eating his McDonald's and noticed Amanda screaming and acted when others wouldn't. 
Well, he actually got free McDonald's for a year. <laughs> Good for him. Hey, you know, every little perk helps. But and from everything that I've read and watched about him, this event kind of revitalized him and completely turned his life around for the better. And it sounds like he's doing well for himself. We love that. Yeah. A crazy case, 10 years in the making, and then it's been another 10 years since it went down, but at least they all got out. Yeah, because that does not happen very often. Yeah. I mean, how many other stories have we done where it ends in a tragic manner? A lot. So that's the story. That's the story of the Cleveland kidnappings. If this is your first time hearing about the case, there's a whole lot of stuff online that you can find, lots of documentaries. Um, there's even been some like Lifetime movies made and all kinds of stuff. There will also be stuff on our socials. Come hang out with us on Instagram, Unnatural the Podcast. Shit. Unnatural True Crime Podcast. <laughs> Come hang out with us on Instagram, Unnatural the Podcast. We have a Facebook page, Unnatural a True Crime Podcast. You can also send us a Gmail, unnaturalthepodcast at gmail.com. And as always, be sure to rate, subscribe, follow, and share us with your friends. And we will talk to you next week. It's so funny because just last episode, I was bragging about how now you can say that whole thing with your eyes closed. And then for the first time in over 100 episodes. <laughs> I lost it. I fucked it up. <laughs> well, we got 99 more. I got 99 problems, again. but naming our, our socials, socials ain't one. Ain't one. <laughs> anyway, on that uh, note, be sure to make good choices. And don't get got. Bye. In fact, she almost decided to take the entire day off of work just so she could celebrate her birthday a day before her birthday. You remember when it was a, when you were a teenager, you were a lot more excited about your birthday and you would celebrate it all week long. That's not what we do anymore, at least me. Wrong. I am in my 30s, and I celebrate the whole month. Wow. I stopped doing that a long time ago. I mean, I don't, like, go out. After 21. I don't, like, go out a lot, except, like, on my actual birthday or, like, my birthday weekend. But um, I heavily manipulate and guilt trip people throughout the month. Like, you can't ask me to do that. It's my birthday. I'm sorry, you want me to help you do what? I can't. It's my birthday. (laughs) She was set to receive her grandfather's 1986 Monte Carlo SS, which is a pretty damn cool car for a 17-year-old to have. Yeah. Way cooler than the car I had when I was 17. It was a Chevy Nova hatchback, but not one of those cool Chevy Novas from the 70s. It was one of the 80s Chevy Novas. And oh, my God. I had a Saturn. It was green. Oh, that's not bad. That's not a bad first car. 
you were roll, rolling around in a Saturn, huh? They see me rolling, <laughs> they hating, patrolling, they trying to catch me riding dirty. Look at me at riding dirty. Where are you? And I'm so sorry. 